In the weeks following the storming of the U.S. Capitol, social media companies suspended or deactivated the accounts of President Trump and many of his supporters. In addition, major IT companies stopped hosting alternative social media platforms, causing them to go offline. Many are claiming that this is a new kind of censorship. Is deplatforming by private companies really a form of censorship? What happens or what about when it's done under the pressure of government? And what about the now notorious Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which shields internet platforms from liability for deleting user content? Well, these are some of the questions we're going to discuss today. Welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. My name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute. With me today is Steve Simpson, senior attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation and formerly my colleague here at ARI. We're really happy to have Steve back to have this conversation. Thanks, Ben. Um, so I'll just let people know that uh, if, if they'd like to ask us questions over the course of our conversation today, best top place to do that is probably YouTube Super Chat. If you'd like to get your question bumped to the top of the queue, great way to do that is to support this channel. Otherwise, we're also going to be monitoring closely the questions that come in through Zoom. And if you want to ask a question through Zoom, please use that Q&A module that you'll see a button for on the bottom. Uh, so Steve, uh, something that we spend a lot of time defending at the Ayn Rand Institute is the right to free speech. Free speech is a basic right that protects the freedom of the intellect, the freedom of the mind to communicate knowledge rationally. Uh, that right is violated by force when someone destroys or threatened to destroy your physical ability to communicate by taking control of your tools of communication, burning your books, taking away your microphone, kicking you off a stage, etc. And Censorship is when that happens systematically through uh, government action, uh, when government tries to suppress speech. Notably, it's important to contrast censorship with private decisions to platform, to feature content or not. But the situation that I described at the top was where at least what looked like private companies are making decisions about what content to feature. And yet people are still calling this censorship. Uh, I know that this has come up in particular in a Wall Street Journal article that we're going to be looking at today. What do you think is going on here? What's the major kind of argument that is putting free speech into the news with this controversy over social media deplatforming? Uh, sure. Um, there are a lot of a number of points to make. Let me just make one point up front sort of by way of disclaimer, so to speak. Um, you, you mentioned that I work at the Pacific Legal Foundation. I'm a lawyer there, uh, which is true. And um, uh, But I'm here speaking for myself. I just want to make clear to everybody that this is not PLF's views. These are my views. Um, I don't think PLF has really taken any kind of a position on the social media battles or, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but regardless, uh, just to be clear up front, Everything that I'm saying on the show today or on the on the podcast today is is my views and not PLS. But with that said, so there's a couple of points we can make on that. There, I think broader points that are going on here. I mean, one point that we might want to make, but I'll, I'll focus in on the the precise question: What's the argument being made right now? Um, but there's more broadly than just the argument that's being made about social media is that people have confused what censorship is and are confused about censorship and the role of free speech and what the right of free speech is for a very long time. And I don't really think that anything we're seeing in the context of the fight over social media is really, none of these arguments are new. They've been around for a very long time. In fact, you, you could trace them back to, in various forms, all the way back to, um, you know, the mid-19th century uh, with the railroads and a lot of, um, you know, the rise of industry. Uh, which maybe we can talk about, but that's just a point that I want to make. I don't think any of these arguments are new. But in any event, to cut to the, the point that you referred to, the Wall Street Journal article, um, and I don't know if you, if you mentioned the title of the, of the article that you're referring to or not. Yeah, Save the Constitution from Big Tech. So the basic argument, I mean, the, to put this in context, there's been a lot of fighting disputes and debates over social media 
and the extent to which social media is sort of controlling free speech or whether it's censoring people or whether it's just abusing its, quote, power. And that's been going on for a while now. I would say about six or seven years at least, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, so this is sort of the newest incarnation of, of that kind of fight. And it has a lot to do with, you know, broader cultural wars. But the, the, the argument that this Wall Street Journal article is making is in, as, in essence that by um, passing Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which you can think of as immunizing social media platforms from certain kinds of liability that would otherwise apply if they were publishers, and we can talk about the details of that, that by doing that, the government has essentially created a kind of carrot and stick phenomenon, the carrot being Section 230, which the social media companies like, the stick being threats either to uh, take action against social media companies or to withdraw Section 230. And that if you combine those two things together, social media is no longer acting like a private company. It's essentially acting like a government. And that then the, the principles of the First Amendment should apply to social media, which means they wouldn't be allowed to make content-based distinctions. So to be more concrete about that, they couldn't boot Donald Trump off, uh, off of their platforms because they don't like his ideas or any other conservatives or really leftists or anybody really at all. They'd have to act like a government. Um, now, I'll, I'll pause there and you can, we, we can go on. I don't want to get too much into the details uh, right now if you want me to. I'll just say this. Um, there's a whole lot wrong with that argument. I mean, I think the argument is, is completely wrong. It doesn't mean that every single premise of the argument is wrong. So one thing that, that we want to explore a bit is it is true that it's possible uh, for government when it is, if it is intimidating or threatening a private company, it is possible, and it's a, I think this is a valid application of you know, all kinds of different principles, um, that government can, I, I've heard the term used, censorship by proxy, that that's a real phenomenon. Government can actually pressure private parties to do things that government wouldn't be able to do, and it's proper in certain cases for the, for the courts to consider that action government action. But then there's a big question of, okay, then what's the conclusion? What's the remedy for that? What do you do? And just to, to sort of uh, allude to, to where I'm ultimately going, the thing you don't do is treat those private companies as though they're, they're the government for all purposes. What you do is you get the government the hell out of social media uh, and or, or prevent it from threatening social media, let's say, or intimidating private parties to do its, its dirty work, so to speak. But there's a whole lot wrong with that article. So let me just pause there and let you. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about this because at least one of the more plausible parts of the article, I thought, was where it cites various threats made by various politicians against social media companies. It mentions, for instance, that congressional Democrats have repeatedly made explicit threats to social media giants if they fail to censor speech those lawmakers disfavored. It mentions the Democrat from Louisiana, Cedric Richmond. Now, it also, what it doesn't mention is the Republican politicians who've done more or less the same thing. And maybe sometimes they offer to use a different, a different stick, but there are still threats being made on both sides. And so your point, Steve, is that when those threats are real and when the private entity acts because of those threats, that there's a point to thinking of that as a kind of indirect censorship or a kind of self-censorship or censorship by proxy. And I think you had, I mean, is this even just a point that's true about censorship? Is it, there's, there's other cases of uh, private action that's induced by force. Uh, by government in other areas of the law. Yeah, I mean, that this is not an uncommon phenomenon. And, and uh, I mean, one way to think about this and a really good resource to use for, I think, anybody who wants to think this through is to reread or read for the first time, if you haven't ever read it, Ayn Rand's uh, essay called Have Gun, Will Nudge, which involved the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission in the 1960s. And, and the, the, the chairman of that um, commission, Newton Minow, essentially engaging in, in, a, in a kind of whispering campaign, meaning that they know they have great power over companies. And this happens throughout the economy. It's not just a communications thing. Government knows they have great power over companies, that they regulate all aspects of what companies do. 
And it's quite easy then for a regulator, a bureaucrat, or politician to say, hey, uh, you know, if you don't do our bidding, if you don't uh, operate your companies in the way that we want you to, all kinds of regulatory problems will, you know, fall on you. You know, it's it's the kind of, I, I, I've in the past often um, likened it to the, you know, mob boss who says, hey, great, great uh, business you have there. I'd hate to see something happen to it. And the, the threat is, the implicit threat is is clear, and then you start doing the bidding of the of the mob boss or the mafia don. A government can easily be in that position. Another example that's outside of the context of free speech, and, and you can read this in John Allison's book uh, on the financial crisis. He talks about how um, BB and T initially refused to accept TARP funds, and then he got calls from I think it was people in the Fed. And they basically said, we're going to change, um, I forget, uh, various aspects of how we, we um, account for or uh, uh, the, the, I think it was the debt versus equity ratio at BB&T. In other words, uh, if you don't accept TARP funds, because we want all banks to accept TARP funds, we're going to make life, life difficult for you. And he, he and BB&T ultimately had to succumb. That's in his book. That's a matter of public record. I'm not, that's not something that, you know... I know just because we at ARI are people at ARI are that, you know, we know, um, John. And this is the kind of thing that happens. I mean, I see this in my practice at PLF all the time. I do admin law work. I do separation of powers, which is we sue administrative agencies. And there's a whole raft of ways that agencies can use to put pressure on private companies to get them to do their bidding. And I think that's crystal clear that that's going on with social media. I've written articles about this when I was at ARI. Um, it's been going on for years. And as you point out, one of the ways that you can see what's wrong with this Wall Street Journal article is they point to the, the, the people on the left who are doing it. They point to Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley who've been doing this now. Ted Cruz especially has been doing it for at least five years. And there are other conservatives too. That kind of gives you a sense of the perspective and, uh, and I think the, the skewed perspective of the authors. So you mentioned before that even though it's a real thing, that uh, private entities can kind of act at the behest of government because they're acting under a threat, that the big question is, well, what do you do because of it? And you said, well, you know, one response would be to say, well, government should stop issuing these threats. But of course, the response that many of these advocates, like the ones in the Wall Street Journal article, want to actually make is to either incentivize someone to sue uh, these companies or to have government take direct action against these companies. And so I wanted to ask, I mean, how much sense does this make? I mean, are there ever cases in the law when, let's say, some company acts under the threat of government to do something and it's the company that then gets held liable or gets sued or and properly so? As well, so to two points on this. Yeah. So there are actually one of the one of the problems, I would say, with it's, it, uh, it, it's not so much the article that we're talking about, but broader in the law. It, it's, it's often true that you can find bad cases or cases that support the wrong principles. That's just true. I mean, so there are some of the cases that they cite in that um, article. One in particular involved um, a law that required a railway company to conduct drug tests of employees. And I don't think the case was wrong, and I'm not going to go into all the details. I'll just say that this was a mandatory drug testing program mandated by the government. And the question was, is that a first Fourth Amendment search? And the, and the court said, yes, it is a Fourth Amendment search. Now, exactly how that goes and, and plays out, people can read the case. Um, and But ultimately, what they did was they subjected these drug tests to a Fourth Amendment analysis as though it was being done by the government. I think it was correctly decided as far as it goes. It was just, look, this is being mandated by the government. Uh, and it was a suit against the private company and the government. So, yeah, there are circumstances in which courts have held that you can bring a suit against a private party um, and possibly even that uh, that the remedy would be against the private party. But the, the, the main, I think, line of precedent, and certainly the one that is correct, is, and, and you can see this in two of the cases that, that, the, uh, that the authors cite. One involves a bookseller, a book wholesaler. I think it's the Bantam Books case, and the other one's Carlin Communications. In both those cases, the government, or sorry, the courts did 
the logic and correct thing, which is in both those cases, it involved pressure by public officials for either a wholesaler of books to stop selling these books, or uh, it was in one case, it was a phone company um, not allowing these kind of, um, I don't know what it was like, porn call in, you know, types of uh, phone services. And in both cases, they held this is state action and we should invalidate it, but they didn't say that the companies could then not choose what books to sell or what content to carry in the case of the phone company. What they said is the government has to stop the threats in effect. So the remedy was government stop threatening, stop intimidating. And then in one of the cases they actually said, and I think this was absolutely correct, but the phone company can go back later after all of these threats are gone and it can make whatever content decisions it wants to make. That's the proper approach. So that the uh, analogy here would be if uh, politicians are threatening social media to either ban certain content content or accept certain content, uh, the proper result is for the courts to say government has to stop doing that. And then to say, now um, these companies essentially revert back to purely private companies or treated as private companies, and they get to decide their own content. That's the that is both the I think the the uh, consensus rule in the cases, and it's the best rule. It's the rule that is most consistent with free speech, with freedom, and really, frankly, just with logic. So, with all that in mind, it's I think helpful to now think a little bit more about what's going on in the contemporary political scene. We know that private actors can act under the threat of force from government, and that when they do that, it it counts as a kind of censorship by proxy. But the question is, is that actually what's happening and to what extent and and because of which threats? I mean, if we want to talk about, say, the, the deplatforming of President Trump by Twitter, on the one hand, uh, it, it, this happened after the after the Capitol riot and after the election was certified by Congress. And so you could make the argument that, well, maybe this is now the threat of Trump's action having been removed and Twitter's getting to do what it wanted to do all along. Uh, I mean, I think there were a lot of people who complained that Trump had violated a lot of the terms of service of Twitter over the years, but they were kind of giving him a special pass because uh, he was the president and could do bad things to Twitter. I mean, that perspective doesn't usually come up in these conversations. Now, it's also true by the same token that there's an incoming administration. Uh, there's the Biden administration who's not very friendly to Trump. And you could make the argument, well, Twitter is worried about what Biden might do to it if it keeps giving Trump a platform. I mean, one way of stepping back from both of these perspectives is that they're sort of damned if they do and damned if they don't one way or the other, which makes me sympathize with their perspective more. But I wonder what you would say. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you on that. I also think there's, um, first of all, I, I think it's really difficult, if not impossible, to tell precisely what the reasons are that these companies are taking the actions that they're taking. And so I often start with sort of, all right, well, what's the simplest explanation for this? Or at least what is the, what is, you know, one potential explanation for it? And, and I mean, you mentioned that, that uh, they may have been afraid of Trump. They may now be afraid of Biden, those kinds of things. I mean, there's another reason that they, that they kept Trump on these platforms uh, that at least strikes me is because he is the president, not because he's going to force them to do things, but because, hey, like him or hate him, he's the president, and it's probably a good idea to allow him just to be on there and be out there saying all of the dumbheaded things that he said. I mean, there's an argument for it just makes sense to have allowed the president a platform, even if he's saying crazy things. Now, I do think that then, uh, you know, that, that there's a point at which it makes perfectly good sense for uh, any company, social media company, to stop featuring what the president says. And I think Twitter was, and, and the, these companies were right to bar him during and right after the Capitol attacks. But ultimately, that's their decision to make. And, and I mean, absent, you know, really compelling evidence that they're doing this because of government pressure, uh, I mean, put this slightly differently. If a court were taking this up, it would require some really serious evidence that this is, in fact, as a result of government pressure. And that's kind of cuts both ways. And one, it's it's just hard to prove. You can't just assume that that's going on. 
Two, it's difficult for a company when a company is in that position to prove that in court. If they want to say, hey, this isn't the reason we're doing this or we want to challenge this government action. It's just very difficult. So uh, there's, there's, I, I think that the debates today about social media and what's going on with social media, people assume all kinds of things that, that there's not enough evidence for. There's all kinds of other rational explanations for what these companies are doing, including, by the way, we don't like what Trump has to say, or we don't like what conservatives has to say, and we're going to take them off because we disagree with them, which, by the way, is perfectly legitimate. I mean, this is something that is getting lost in this debate entirely. The idea that a private company or a private individual or any private association can't disassociate themselves with, ban, whatever you want to say, it's not censorship, ideas that they disagree with is absolutely wrong, and it's contrary to the First Amendment. One of the points that I, I'll just make this and then we can, if you want to explore it a bit more, that people have to keep in mind is the First Amendment applies to government and what it means is government can't make content-based distinctions. Government can't censor. But in the context of individuals, the right of free speech and the freedom that free speech represents means something closer to the opposite, which is to say, you get to choose your ideas you get to think about what your ideas are and what content you support. And it's vitally important that you make those kinds of choices. No individual, I think, would be acting responsibly, responsibly if they just said, I accept all content or I'll support any ideas no matter what they are. No, of course, this matters to you. This is a value to you. You should be making content-based distinctions um, about the speech that you support, about the things that you say. That's part of what free speech means. Let's Let's uh, talk about that a little bit more because there's a question that came in from YouTube. Someone said, so as long as it's, quali as, as it's qualified as censorship by proxy, it's okay. And I think it's no. good to clarify, that's not at all what I think you're saying, right? You're saying, no, if, no. It's, if it is really acting under threat of government and if it is censorship by proxy, then it's, it's also bad, but you're saying the solution is not to blame the company, it's to blame the government and to tell the government to stop uh, issuing these threats, right? Yeah, exactly right. And just to be clear, maybe, I mean, censorship by proxy may not be the best term for it, but regardless, um, keep in mind that when, at least what, the way I'm using, when I talk about censorship by proxy, the only reason it's appropriate to use the term censorship in the context of a private company ever and at all is if the reason that they are quote, well, I won't even use censored, but the reason that they're blocking content or not, not uh, distributing content or changing their own speech in some way is because of the threat of government force. Um, and I mean, you could also say that in certain, like something like the Danish cartoon, uh, uh, you know, crisis, so to speak, or the threat of force by others, it's not. It's still not really censorship. Censorship is something only that that only government can do. So no, it's the opposite of okay because it's censorship by proxy. It's not okay. But as you put it, we don't blame the private companies for that. And and I, I want to stress something: we shouldn't be blaming the private companies, even if they're doing all kinds of things that we disagree with, even if they're That's being hypocrites, even if they're being inconsistent. You're allowed to be a hypocrite under in a free society. You're allowed to be inconsistent. You're allowed to say one thing one day and something that totally contradicts it the next day. Um, this is not something that even, I mean, it's just not even in the world of censorship for people to do that. As I said before, the principle, in principle, you making decisions about the content that you speak or that the content that you support, that's absolutely essential. And that's part of what it means to have the freedom of speech. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction to make that part of what you're saying when you say this is not. When it's a private decision, it's not censorship. They have the right to do it. You're not necessarily saying you agree with what they're doing or with what they're saying or what their policy is. And you might think that Twitter's policy is unclear. It's inconsistent. It's exercised arbitrarily. They should have kicked Trump off many years ago. They should have kicked off various different foreign leaders and terrorist leaders or whatever. But it's still... Uh, it's still their right to make these bad decisions. They might even be bad business decisions because people decide, no, these yeah. policies are unfair and I'm going to leave and I'm going to go start a different platform. Um, yeah. and, and it's a good question of whether that's happening. Yeah, one, 
Can I make one quick point on that, yeah. Ben, if you don't mind? Um, but it's also true that, I mean, let, you know, people need to think about what companies like Twitter and Facebook are dealing with. They have like a billion users. And, and there's no possible way. This notion that uh, social media from the beginning was going to be content neutral. Yeah, I know Mark Zuckerberg said that. I'm sure Jack Dorsey, I guess it is, at Twitter said that. I'm sure a lot of these people said that. They were all wrong. It was incredibly naive to say things like that. And so let's shrug it off and just recognize it was always going to be the case that they had to uh, that they had to make content decisions. Otherwise, their platforms basically would have become cesspools and full of crime and all kinds of other things in addition to, to good speech. So the idea that, um, I mean, yeah, by all means, judge them. But let's, when we judge them, let's kind of try to understand they're dealing with like a billion people and they have, you know, messages constantly. What they're trying to do is really, really difficult. So jumping to the worst possible motives, you know, it can only be censorship uh, as your first uh, place to go, even if they are doing that a little bit in, a, in the sense that they're not being consistent. And yes, of course, they probably all tilt left or they, I would say it's, it's almost definite that they tilt left. Okay, big deal. So they're like newspapers, you know, um, but they really have a really hard job. And the idea that we're going to criticize every single thing they do because I don't like what appears on my Facebook feed or, or I don't like the fact that they gave me some warning, that just strikes me as, uh, I don't know, it's, it's not really understanding what the companies are doing and the, and the context in which they're operating. I would add to that a point that I often make in connection here, which is that it's not, it's not simply a difficulty with technology, for instance. Uh, it's also a difficulty with the business model that you're trying yeah. to create a social platform that people can use for free, but it's an incredibly complicated piece of technology that you need to fund somehow. And one of the major ways that they fund it is through advertising. Well, advertisers aren't happy when it turns out that their advertisements are appearing alongside some, uh, you know, neo-Nazi forum or something like that. And, and I mean, these companies know that their users are going to boycott them and leave them in droves if, if it turns out that they're not exercising some kind of discretion over who gets to be on the platform. And so unless you have the view that you can have effects without causes, right. you have to understand, well, what is the cause of free social media. Well, it's a funding model and funding model presupposes some kind of standards, if you, especially if you want advertisers. But even if it's a different business model, uh, the same problems arise because people aren't going to pay for a service that they think is just a cesspool of one thing or another. And everybody agrees that there needs to be some kind of standards. I mean, everybody agrees that terrorists shouldn't be able to use these platforms to uh, you know, plan terrorist events. Everybody agrees there shouldn't be uh, child pornography on Facebook or something like that. And the, the challenge is, how are you going to filter out that kind of thing? And yeah, there's going to be borderline cases where you're not quite sure and people who are innocent might get, you know, uh, pulled into something that they, you know, they might get kicked off when they weren't, weren't as bad as the people they were trying to kick off. But it's a, it's a difficult thing to engineer. Yeah. And in fact, you, your point about advertisers is, is part of the reason this all started with YouTube. As I recall, several years ago, there, a lot of their advertisers started complaining when they were linked to videos that they objected to. So yeah, that's, that's definitely a practical reality for them. So I wanted to uh, acknowledge a, that a Super Chat donation came in that we're very grateful for. And I'll just remind people at this time, if you'd like to get your questions pushed to the top of the queue at YouTube, the Super Chat donation is a good way to do it. Steve, let's talk about a different aspect of that Wall Street Journal article. So we talked about how the article rightly points out that there is such a thing as this kind of censorship by proxy when companies act under threat by government force. Uh, but instead of saying that these companies are victims and government should stop victimizing them, what the authors of this article instead do is to propose repealing a law that protects these company. And that's, of course, Section 230. I think we should talk about Section 230 and what it actually says. So let me start by just putting it up on the screen here for people to actually be able to read. This is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. That's another name for the Telecommunications Act of 1996. And what the section says is well, that it provides protection for Good Samaritan blocking and screening of offensive material. And there's two major provisions. One, 
treatment of publisher or speaker. No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. And then two, about civil liability. No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be held liable on account of any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that the provider or users considers to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, whether or not such material is constitutionally protected. Now, I remember when this law was first being discussed that there were critics of the social media company who are saying, well, Section 230 says that when they're not neutral, we can take away this liability. They're not saying that anymore. Now they're saying, because I think they've realized that's not what it says. What they're now saying is we should just repeal this protection, that these companies don't deserve this freedom from liability for the behavior of their users. What do you think about that? And what, I mean, how would you summarize what you think this law in essence is doing? Yeah, so um, I'll talk about those points, but let me make one clarification. They're actually making a worse argument than you just stated. They're not just saying repeal Section 230. They're basically saying put social media under the thumb of government. That's what the they they actually talk about that in the Wall Street Street Journal article. At least I'm I'm almost positive we could take another look at it. But if I'm wrong, readers can correct me. But uh, I'm almost sure what they're saying essentially is repealing Section 230 is not enough because the damage has already been done. And what they're, they're basically making an argument that is very much like an antitrust type of argument, um, which is these companies now have too much power and they need to be regulated by government. Um, and it's not even enough to repeal Section 230. So a number of years ago, you talked about the first kind of round of these arguments. Ben Shapiro and Ted Cruz were both making the argument that we should get rid of Section 230, or at least they were using that as a kind of stick. I do think that that's true. Now they've kind of evolved from there. Now I shouldn't say they, because I don't know what Ted Cruz and and Ben Shapiro think, but the authors of this article and others I've heard are essentially saying, and this has been in the air, so to speak, for a while, coming mostly from from Democrats, I think, but now from Republicans that, and Josh Hawley is the perfect example of this, these companies are too powerful and they need to be broken up like AT&T was. But anyway, getting back to your point about what does Section 230 do? So we have to back up just a little bit, and, and we should talk just a little very quickly about the idea of a publisher liability versus distributors, distributor liability slash platform liability. That that's a pre-existing legal concept. And so, I mean, I'll just summarize it as for the, the, the general legal rule was if you're a publisher, you're, you can be strictly or you're typically strictly liable for the content that appears in your publication. Uh, and now we should be clear about when we talk about liability here, what we're saying is you, you're, you'd be liable for any of the types of things that a speaker can possibly be liable for. So it's not just that you're liable for anything you say or you're liable if you, if you block Republicans and not Democrats. There's no such thing as liability for that. So it's things like defamation threats, incitement, fraud could be one. Uh, And there are others. Uh, Obscenity is another one too, although even though I don't think there should be obscenity laws, the fact of the matter is there is such a thing and and publishers can be liable for that. And the reason for that, so let me just back up for a second and say the broad principle here is a a principle of liability that crosses many different contexts in the law, whether it's criminal liability, whether it's tort liability, And the basic principle is this. It's pretty simple. You should only be liable for the things that you're responsible for and that you control, right? So, you know, if if I loan my car to somebody and they crash their car into somebody else, I'm not necessarily, I'm usually not going to be held liable for that unless I knew the person was drunk or crazy or they didn't have a license or whatever. Um, uh, So that's the basic principle. You're liable for what you're responsible for. So a publisher is liable for the content that they publish Why? Because they're the publisher, right? Part of what being a publisher is, is you're reviewing, you're deciding on the content, you're you're, you're editing it. Think of what a magazine does. Think of the New York Times for articles that it writes itself or its reporters do or that publishes on its editorial page. Um, It's liable for, for all of that because it controls all the content. It's making all the content decisions. So if somebody is defamed in an article in the New York Times, the editors of the New York Times and the publisher of the New York Times is liable because they are the ones who actually, you know, put the content out there. 
other side of the coin is somebody like a distributor or a platform. Distributor, the easiest way to understand what a distributor is, think about a bookstore, right? They sell books. They can't review the content in every single book that they sell. Barnes and Noble is not going to sit down and read and fact check every book it sells. So the liability for a distributor is they're not liable unless they knew or should have known that the content was somehow harmful, defamatory, et cetera, the various things that one can be liable for. Section 230 is passed in the, I think it's the late 90s. And the reason it's passed is that a couple courts blurred that distinction between publisher liability and platform liability. Not surprisingly, uh, in a, it's, I mean, it's a new area. I think it was Prodigy was the, uh, was the first one. I think AOL, America Online may, may have been the other. And they kind of blurred that liability in um, a couple of cases. And they held essentially um, uh, companies that gave access to the internet and that featured content, but had no uh, editorial control over it. They held them liable and they held them liable as publishers because those companies uh, were making certain kinds of content distinctions. And I think the, the, the main case is one in which they held them out themselves out to be family friendly, meaning they were calling, you know, offensive, non-family, family friendly, you know, obscene content. And the court said, look, if you're engaging in any kind of content filtering, let's say, or moderation, that makes you a publisher. So it's it's a it's sort of a, 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 a you know a gray area in the law, and Congress came along and they said we don't think that should be the rule. Um, we want internet companies to flourish. We don't want your email service provider to be liable for every single email that that goes through their servers, or the fact that AOL gives you access to the internet or has message boards, etc. Uh, we don't want them to be liable. And it passed Section 230. So what it basically says is. Um, the content providers or the platforms, um, you can put the language back up, but internet service providers, I, I forget precisely what the language is, but it's, it's, yeah, so no provider of an interactive computer service. So it's like an AOL. I mean, this is, I'm going to date myself by talking about AOL and, and Prodigy because probably nobody remembers what the hell they were way back in the ancient days of the early, you know, the late 90s. Um, but you can think about it as Facebook or an email service provider, an internet, internet service provider, you know, Google, whatever. Um, giving access uh, to people, they're not going to be treated as publishers. They're going to be treated as distributors or, or platforms, as, as I described before. And that's going to hold true even if they filter content um, in the ways that Section 2 uh, discusses. Now, I think that's a proper, sensible rule. And if we go back to what I talked about before, the distinction between um, publisher and uh, distributor, there's there's more distinctions we could make, but let me just offer a couple sort of hypotheticals or thoughts. So I said earlier that a bookstore uh, is not a publisher because they don't review all books, right? So let's say a bookstore decides I'm only going to sell books from a conservative perspective, or I'm only going to sell books from a a liberal perspective, or from a libertarian perspective. There's a bookstore in New York when I was a, I was young that Wendell's books that sold, you know, all of the books that I would want to read about Rand and all these other things, but they were they were obviously filtering their content. Now, what section 230 says is they're not liable as a publisher, right? I think that's that makes perfectly good sense. And here's the reason. The fact that you say I'm going to make a broad category distinction about the types of books I sell still doesn't mean you're the publisher of those books, right? It's only when you become a publisher, which is to say you are actually responsible for the content. And it is possible, and this is something that I think is lost in this debate, for somebody to be both a publisher for some content and a distributor for other content. So uh, Barnes & Noble has its own imprint. It publishes some books. It's liable for the content of those books. That doesn't make it liable for the content of every other book that they sell. Or another good example, the New York Times is a publisher for the articles that it writes, but when it posts them online and it has a comment section and people post comments on that comment section, now I don't know how this works under, presumably this is covered by section 230, I'm not positive, but I'm making a broader principle point. That I, The fact that they are publishing the article, in my view, doesn't mean they should be liable for everything that's said in the comments. 
right? That's those are two different functions, and we can make a distinction between those functions. So, or or let's say, uh, you know, way back in the olden days when there was classified advertisements, you wouldn't hold the classified advertisement um, publication logically, at least, liable for every single classified ad unless they are making content distinctions or unless they're actually screening that content in a particular way that would give rise to them, you know, unless they knew or should have known that certain of that content was somehow uh, illegal. So it's, it's, sense, it, it, it's crucial to make the distinction between publisher liability and platform liability, not just on a company-by-company company basis, but I would put it as a function-by-function function basis. Um, but the bottom line point that I'm trying to make here is I think the core of Section 230 is, is the right principle. It's not just good to grow a good internet or create companies. It's actually a logical, proper you know, principle that comports with age-old principles of tort and criminal liability and I think is, is entirely consistent with free speech. I think the, the function by function uh, way of looking at this that you mentioned is helpful. And it makes me think you, ha- you, you shouldn't think of social media companies, for instance, as entities that are just given blanket liability for anything that they do. So for instance, you mentioned things that you didn't think they should be held liable for because it's clearly being posted by their users in a way that's not being edited or anything like that. But you can think of things that social media companies do post where they are the ones making the decision about the content. So for example, there are these fact-checking things that they're now posting <laughs> next to peop- other people's article. Well, if it turns out that some fact-check article uh, or statement is just wrong and they're claiming that somebody was lying when they weren't, then that's a way in which the social media companies might be defaming somebody else. And they could be uh, held liable for that. They could be sued for that. But that's because they're acting in their capacity as a publisher and not as just the host of a platform. Um, And somebody on Zoom asked the question, why uh, shouldn't traditional publishers enjoy Section 230 protection? I take it, Steve, that part of your answer to that question you've already given, which is, well, that to the extent that they're acting as a publisher, they're not doing something, or rather they are doing something that they're liable for to the extent that they're editing and deciding what content goes out. But yeah, if some publishing company wanted to go into the business of owning a bookstore, uh, at which point they're no longer the ones who are actually deciding on the exact content, then you could hold or you could give them that kind of liability. And I think a broader point here is that the reason that people can be held responsible for content is that there's an expectation that something's being communicated by their action, right? So if if I put my imprint on somebody else's book, that communicates that I've not necessarily endorsed all the content, but that I think it's worth being communicated, that I think uh, this is a at least plausible argument, and I'm going to put my resources into editing it, into putting it into lots of people's hands. But that's a very different thing from just like, Here's a conversation being held by millions of people. I mean, nobody could possibly think that anybody who hosts that conversation endorses or thinks all of it is equally good. It's just you could never think that of somebody because there's no way that they could think it because there's so many people involved. Yeah, no, that's definitely right. And I mean, there's a couple other points that are worth making here. Uh, One is... um, I think that, so I, I wholeheartedly agree, uh, typically with the, the example you gave about Facebook, if, if Facebook is acting as a publisher, it should be held to the same standards that any publisher is held to, whatever those standards may be. Um, I think that, uh, uh, so the way I've often put it is, okay, when anyone is acting as a publisher, they're a publisher. When anyone is acting as a, as a platform, they're a platform. But let's be really clear about what platform liability versus publisher liability, or you could call it distributor versus publisher, uh, is and should be. And one of the things that we ought not do uh, when we're, if we really want to have an honest debate about, you know, social media and its liability, platform liability versus publisher liability, we should be willing to take a look at both sides of that equation. And maybe it might be true that the common law rules or the old rules respecting publisher liability made publishers liable for too much. That, that could be part of the debate or the discussion too. We really need to, to ask ourselves fundamentally, why do we have these principles and are they correct? And if, if publishers have a beef about 
you know, what liability, what things they are made liable for. Well, that's also a legitimate topic of debate. Maybe they are too, you know, they're being held liable for too much. There are circumstances in which I can imagine situations in which publishers probably shouldn't be liable, even for something they publish. But the point ultimately is, if we want to really take a look at this and figure out what the rules should be, we should be willing to take a look at the whole uh, context of this, not just, you know, I hate the fact that Facebook is, is blocking certain content I don't like. So uh, let's make them a publisher and just, you know, make them liable for everything. That's crazy. It doesn't make sense. It's not, it's not a sensible way to, to take a look at this. Um, it's also true that, uh, and I, th- I don't know the answer to this, so this is worth looking at further. Um, I assume that Section 230 would apply to, say, the New York Times when it's acting in the, you know, as a uh, information provider under the, uh, the terms of Section 230, but I'm not positive that, of that. So I, I don't know. But my ultimate position is, look, when they're acting as a platform or distributor, they should be tributed, treated that way and not as a publisher. So it's, the, it's, a, it's an issue of getting the principles right. The final thing I'll say is that while I think that Section 230 is at its core correct, that doesn't mean it's a perfect law. It doesn't mean that every way that it's written, there are ways that one could tweak it. And um, equally, if not more importantly, it doesn't mean that the courts have applied it correctly. So let me mention something that people can read if they want. Um, this is a, uh, a, it's, it's a, a statement by Justice Thomas in a case in which the Supreme Court declined to review a case, but oftentimes justices will uh, talk about either why they think the court should take the case or just make a statement about uh, the case and, and say something about what the court should do in the future. The case is called Malware Bites versus Enigma. If you go on the SCOTUS blog and you search for that, you can find Justice Thomas's statement. And his basic point is he thinks Section 230 has been interpreted way too broadly to give way too much um, immunity even to distributors. It goes way too far. Um, it doesn't just uh, treat them as distributors. It gives them a kind of liability uh, that even a distributor would not have had or a, or a platform would not have had under the common law rules. And it sounds to me, I haven't read every single case that he cites, but it sounds to me like he makes a very good case that, that Section 230 is being uh, interpreted too broadly. Okay, if that's true, let's have a debate about it. Let's look at it. Congress can you know, can, uh, can perhaps amend it in certain ways. The Supreme Court could uh, interpret it. That's part of the legal process. It's not different from any statute that Congress ever passes. I can tell you as a lawyer for many, many years, there is never a statute that uh, courts get right the first time. That's why we have a Supreme Court. You know, that's why we have con- uh, Congress amending statutes. That's part of the normal process. But that, the fact that 230 may be interpreted too broadly uh, that is not really what is being debated. In fact, I'll just my final point uh, here uh, at this moment is just um, this debate about social media is really, in my view, not a debate about Section 230. I think Section 230 is used, being used as a way of bashing or trying to leverage arguments about um, social media uh, and turn kind of argue that social media is too powerful and, and effectively needs to be reined in by government. And that Section 230 is a kind of excuse or red herring argument. Um, there are problems with Section 230 probably, but even if we fixed all those problems, none of the people who are criticizing uh, social media would really be happy. And that's why, by the way, that Wall Street Journal article does not stop by saying, let's repeal Section 230. It says, let's control social media. Control social media is the ultimate end game. Section 230 really doesn't have anything to do with that, in my view. Yeah, there's a, there's a part of that article where it actually, I'm trying to find the quote I had in mind, but it actually says, if Twitter can stop, if Twitter can deplatform Trump, what happens when Joe Biden comes, uh, tries to use antitrust law against Twitter? Are they going to deplatform him? As though that would be a bad thing for them to do to somebody who's trying to destroy their company. Uh, and which would also, I think, show pretty easily that this is not state action when you're uh, deplatforming the state from your own platform. Um, yeah. 
But Steve, I think uh, we've got about 10 minutes left and we've got a bunch of questions coming in. So I think we should, we should turn to some of these questions. And the first one that I wanted to talk about, I think, uh, touches on a question that I wanted to ask you, but I think let's let this person ask the question instead. From Zoom, they ask, what law is, what law are the, what law is the court using to uphold the denial of access to content created, purchased, and stored by one business onto servers that another business owns? I, I take it this question is referring to the deep platforming of companies like Parler from Amazon Web Services uh, and other companies like Parler and other vendor IT companies that are deciding they don't want to support certain social media companies. Um, so I'm not positive of the answer. That's a good question. That's something that occurred to me and I just didn't have enough time to track that one down and, and figure out the answer. But one, one thing to point out here. So I, I think that Section 230 on its face would apply to Amazon, I guess, Amazon Web Services, the, the you know, the, the servers aspect of, of Amazon, just based on its written. But I'm not 100% sure of that. So that's, that's a valid question to ask. Um, but I'm also not sure if the issue of um, if this is uh, so one way to think about this, I mean, no court, I mean, I, I shouldn't go this far and say no court has, has ruled one way or another on that. Um, but it's not as though a court sort of said, Amazon, you're allowed to do this. Amazon is taking an action that it believes is proper because it owns the servers and it has a contractual relationship with Parler and my understanding although I haven't really read the contracts, is that they have the, Amazon has the right to uh, boot people off of its servers if it violates its terms of service, which is essentially its contract. So that is, it's fundamentally a, a, an issue of property rights and contract. That is, Amazon owns its servers and it's allowed to say who can be on those servers or condition the use of those servers. And my reading of what happened with Parler is that Amazon was on you know, solid ground. I think morally speaking, um, what Amazon did was entirely proper and understandable, even if uh, it's acting inconsistently. Remember, the context here is it's basically around the time of the capital attacks. Amazon, as I understood it, notified Parler that there was content on there that they thought was incitement or in some way, even whether it's legally incitement or just fanning the flames of a horrific, you know, what, what Ankar and, and Alan called a terrorist attack, which I think is exactly the right way to, to put it. Uh, it's it's entirely appropriate for a company to say, "Hey, I don't want anything to do with that. Like, I am not our, our, I'm not going to allow my company to be used in as as in any way to fan the flames of an attack on the capital." Um, and from there, it's basically a contract issue. And I think that's the primary dispute between Amazon and Parler. But I think Amazon acted appropriately, even if it was. In some way, you could argue that they went too quickly or there's all kinds of things that you could take issue with, that it wasn't really incitement. As far as I'm concerned, Amazon has every right. And I would even say in a context like that, a moral duty to say, you know what, we're putting a stop to this. And they could say, sorry, Parler, you know, but you're, you're, you're out of luck at the moment. We'll, we'll deal with this later. But we are taking this content down immediately in a context like that. I would add two things, which... Oh, question. Sorry, go ahead. In addition to the fact that they, they thought that the, these alternative companies were being used uh, to possibly incite things that happened at the Capitol, there was also a worry that there was going to be more coming, and they were trying to prevent that. The inauguration was coming. There were threats, of, uh, threats being made against the inauguration. But it's also not as though uh, these alternate platforms have just been banned permanently from uh, the, the Amazon and other kinds of IT companies. I mean, I think they've communicated their conditions. If, if these companies create some kind of level of moderation, they're willing to have them back. I've heard Tim Cook from Apple say that in particular against, against with regard to parlors. So it's not like they are never going to let them back, though it would be their right to do it if they wanted to. That's again, it's not that there's a specific law being invoked. It's that this is the freedom of contract. Yeah. Now, there's another question that came in which I've written a little bit about in the past. Someone asks, what about the fact that these companies receive government subsidies? I, I take it the point of the question is internet companies have been 
over the years subsidized by the fact that the government has invested in the basic infrastructure of the internet. I mean, that's what you would have to cite because it's a lot harder to claim that these companies are being subsidized by the government in the way that, I don't know, the auto industry is being directly given payments uh, or lots of companies have been uh, under the PPP. So it's that they've used basic government infrastructure. Well, how many of us use basic government infrastructure? I mean, we all drive on the roads and government subsidize those. So is the argument that because we use public roads, that therefore we don't have any individual liberty or responsibility of our own, that we all have to be treated as government agents? Well, if that's the case, everybody's a government agent and nobody deserves any liberty. So the the, the point to make there is not that the people who have in one form or another used some kind of government infrastructure are government agents. The, the problem, if there are problems with it, is that those forms of government support should be removed. And I don't know what other yeah, forms I, of government I, support this person would cite. But I should also mention that the, yeah. the uh, rumors of government subsidization of the development of the internet are probably overblown. I mean, they did develop some of the very basic was DARPA, I think, that developed some of the very basic protocols, but it was really not until that technology was put in private hands that it started to actually interconnect large numbers of people. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, and another thing to note on that is the subsidies, whatever they are that the person's talking about, but I think your examples are really good. They have no nothing to do with the, the question. They're not connected to the decisions um, that any of these companies are making, at least that I know of based on the question. But your broader point uh, that this would basically turn everybody and every company into a kind of government agent and they would have no rights. And by the way, there are a lot of people who make that argument. So, I mean, there are a lot of thinkers out there who basically say, uh, we don't have rights. I mean, this is a simplification. We don't have rights because we're dependent on government for all kinds of things and we're dependent on other people. So there's no such, there's no distinction between my rights and, you know, my obligations to you or, or there's no way to draw a line between where my rights uh, begin and yours ends, et cetera. And rights are just a myth. I mean, that's, that's a vast oversimplification, but one person who's made this argument is Cass Sunstein in very in many different forms. He's a, he's a legal thinker, but there are a lot of other thinkers who've made these, these arguments. And he's a legal thinker on the left. And so when you start hearing people on the right making the same kind of argument, you start to think, well, maybe, uh, maybe you need to be really skeptical about some of the, the partisanship over this issue that it's, that it, there's a, there's yeah. a kind of collectivist perspective that's infected both sides of our political spectrum. And you really shouldn't try to just take sides on, yeah, you know, absolutely. with the camps. Let's do one last question and then uh, wrap up. We got a question also from Zoom, someone asking us about what is our basic takeaway? They say, is the takeaway from this discussion that media platform providers should have the right to be deceptive, biased, hypocritical scoundrels? Will you have a discussion to enlighten people on just how deceptive, biased, and hypocritical they are? People need to understand and be motivated to boycott. Um, so do people have the right to, to be that, deceptive, biased, hypocritical scoundrels? Well, so short answer, yes. But let's, let's put this in context. What, they, what rights are for is to allow us the freedom so that we can be, and I hesitate to put it as not hypocrites and not scoundrels, but so that we can achieve the good and we can achieve values in our life. And that there is, so I often think about it as, Free speech isn't just the best thing or, for, or intellectual freedom. It's the only thing. Now, that's an overstatement, and it's a, it's a play on a, a famous quote by Vince Lombardi, um, the Green Bay Packers football coach. But the point is, like, there's no such thing. There's no alternative between are we going to maybe we should have free speech or maybe we should have a little bit of government control or a lot of government control. That's not even an alternative. There's just if you want to live a good, happy life, freedom is absolutely essential. It's an irreducible primary. You can't do it without freedom and especially without intellectual freedom. And when we focus on what is the core, the essence of freedom of speech, it's to think so that I can pursue my values and pursue my happiness, not so that I have the right to be a scoundrel and a horrible person. Although, yeah, you're also allowed to be a scoundrel and a horrible person. Why? Because you got to make your own decisions. 
let me leave it at that and see if you have anything to add to it. Ben. I think it's a really important point that the point of freedom is to protect rational and productive action that you get to be, you get the right to be uh, a jerk and you get the right to be irrational just sort of by default. Because if, if it's, if you don't get the freedom, then it's not the freedom to be good in the first place. But at the same time, I think this kind of point, the insistence on criticizing them for their hypocrisy misses the broader perspective here, which is that there is so much good and so much productive achievement that these companies have managed to do because of freedom. They might be inconsistent philosophically. They might have uh, improper standards for many of the decisions that they make, but they've nonetheless delivered to millions of people a free product that allows them to stay interconnected and incidentally complain about these very companies on these very platforms. I mean, I see most of the arguments against social media companies and their hypocrisy, real or imagined, posted on the very platforms that they're complaining about yeah. without no. any sense of irony. Yeah. And yet they no, I mean, that's have an excellent point. I make it, that sense. I, I make that point constantly on Facebook and when I'm arguing with people about this. One additional point to make is by far what at least Facebook and Amazon and a lot of these are about YouTube is another good example. It's not just political debate. The idea that, that there's, there's the only uh, value that you get from these forums is political debate is crazy in my view. I mean, it, YouTube it has so much content on it that has nothing to do with politics or tribalism or any other crap that people are constantly arguing. I shouldn't suggest it's just crap. It's just there are important issues. But I mean, you can learn a giant amount from YouTube alone. I have learned immense amounts of like just tons of things from YouTube uh, we connect with our friends on Facebook. There's all kinds of benefit from these companies that have nothing to do with the narrow band of political debates. And to reduce them just to they're all about politics and hypocrisy in politics, that is, is I don't know, it's narrow-minded to say the least. Good. Thanks, Steve. Well, let me start to wrap up by sharing some resources with our listeners and viewers, if they'd like to learn more about some of the subjects we've discussed today. The first place I would recommend looking is the entry on the topic of censorship in the Ayn Rand lexicon, where you'll get to see some of Ayn Rand's essential views on why free speech is a value, why censorship is opposed to it, why censorship is not the same thing as private decisions about content. Also, an article that Steve, I think, mentioned earlier today, uh, Have Gun Will Nudge. That's the article that explains how censorship can happen by proxy because of government threats. And we actually have that up on the ARI website. If you go to bit.ly slash gun nudge, I gave a short link for that. Check that out. Also, uh, Steve has a book on this subject, Defending Free Speech. Now, this came out in 2016 before some of the controversies that we're talking about today, but certainly underscores his and ARI's commitment to defending free speech and uh, application of these ideals to the events of the day. Also mention a pretty good article that Steve wrote for New Ideal back when he was still on ARI staff in June of 2018, Unjust Attacks on Facebook. This explores some of the ideas about Section 230 that we talked about today. Uh, And then I'll also just mention quickly a couple of articles that I wrote on the same subject, uh, one called Ominous Threats to the Marketplace of Ideas. This surveys Ayn Rand's statements on uh, censorship in its many forms in the modern era and why it's a threat. You can go, go to bit.ly slash ominous threats. And then Facebook censor or victim. This is uh, an article where I explore, again, the idea of how companies can be the victims of censorship, even when they're not acting under an official censorship law, but simply under threat. And how we need to take that into consideration when we are evaluating what they do. That's at bit.ly slash censor or victim. So if you enjoyed our podcast today, I do encourage you to subscribe to our channel on YouTube and to click that bell if you'd like to be able to get notifications for when we have new episodes. Also, please like this episode on YouTube if you'd like to help us optimize our algorithm and get more people seeing this. We are on their platform and we want to stay there. Uh, Also, if you're on Facebook, same story. Please like the episode on Facebook. And if you have questions about anything that's come up today, or if you'd like to suggest 
ideas for future topics, please send us an email at newideal at einrand.org. We read everything that comes in and we respond to a lot of it. And occasionally we do do episodes on topics that viewers uh, suggest. So Steve, thanks very much for joining us today. It was a great conversation. Uh, hope you can come back again soon. I'm sure that these issues are not going to be going away anytime soon. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, Ben. And thanks to ARI. Goodbye, everyone. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.